Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein, and we like to do that in the world of business and sport and comedy and pastoral care and books. Uh, so on and so forth. And and today, anyone who listens knows that uh, I've gotten to know and be a big fan of a guy from, uh, well, it depends on where he is. He's either in Nashville, Tennessee, or he's in Washington, D.C. Where are we at today? I'm in Nashville. Nashville, Stephen Mansfield. You can find out much about him either through Great Man and the many things on his podcast, the Stephen Mansfield podcast, mansfieldgroup.com, Leading Thoughts, Google Leading Thoughts, uh, Stephen Mansfield, and there's a lot of content to be had. He feels like a good friend. I always wish we had a season of being in the same city so we could do a lot of life and ministry together. But uh, always, Stephen, a great pleasure to, have, to talk to you, and uh, thanks for being on a Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast today. It is my privilege, man. Great to be with you again. Well, since this is a different one from the one you were on before, give us kind of the couple-minute version of you coming to Jesus. Raised as a military brat, which means I moved every year in my early life. You know, popular in, in each school I was in, but lonely because we moved every year. Finally, my mother became a believer under the ministry of a military chaplain in Berlin, Germany. Began witnessing to me, came back to the States, uh, deeply impacted by Christian rock. I was into rock and Christian rock was really talking to me, second chapter of Acts and all that kind of thing. And finally, I got led to Jesus uh, pretty much by Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, over the summer, and, and I was, went to West Des Moines High School. And uh, because of that, I turned down a football scholarship and went to a Christian university. And uh, so I went straight from getting saved and praying the prayer right into classes on Christian worldview and, you know, all that kind of thing. It was really, really good for me. Good discipleship, good brothers around me. So that's how that happened. I got, I got saved in the, the August of 1976. Wow. So I sent you a message and I commented about, I just saw this post that Steve Sarkeesian had when they signed Arch Manning and it said, all gas, no brakes. Now you're a Notre Dame fan, so sorry, um, sorry, Arch Manning, if you play Notre Dame, Stephen is not cheering for you. But I'm not, baby. that phrase seems to apply well to you. You seem to be a guy from lifelong learning, growth and development, uh, really studying culture, politics, everything else you seem to me to be an all gas no breaks with rest thrown in speak to that about your growth and why you just kind of get after it the way you do you know i i think it's because i'm i'm really am not just doing a job i am fired up about what i do i really love what i get to do so if if, if bev goes out of town for a week i'm going to do more of what i do i'm not going to do less of it uh, meaning that you know if she's not here and i can just you know read late into the night or work late into the night I'm going to work on the things that I'm working on. So it's a combination of, yeah, energy and intellectual interest and passion. Um, but I'm very, very fortunate in that what I do professionally is aligned with what my passions and interests are. Some people have to, you know, they have a passion for one thing, but they go into a job that's completely different every day. That's not me. 
So I, I get to do two things. I get to pursue my interests and passions, number one. And number two, I have great renaissance opportunities. In other words, I'm, as you've observed, I'm in Iraq advocating for the Kurds one day, and I'm up on the hill in D.C. the next day, not the next day, but a few days later. <laughs> and then I'm writing about men. And then I'm, you know, whatever. Um, so I have renaissance interest, and but also a renaissance calling. I'm called to two or three different things. I'm, since I believe that God determines these things, um, I'm, I, I look like I'm just exploding in 50 different directions. The reality is there are about five or six directions that I'm really called to. I've got a good team. I need to say that while I, while I am absolutely pedal to the metal, I'm very careful about health. I'm very careful about rest. I'm very careful about prioritizing time with Bev, which is easy because I'm crazy about her and we're not only lovers, but business partners. So uh, I'm very fortunate in that my life fits my passion and my zeal and my marriage, uh, my home, my, my, the opportunities that I have match all that. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much full tilt, but you can't just be full tilt all the time apart from your relationships and apart from your health and apart from rest and apart from honoring God with your time, your money, et cetera. So I'm very, very, very fortunate in the configuration of my life. Appreciate you saying that. Well, yeah, and I wanted to be careful when I said that, that all gas, no brakes did not mean rest because you do sure. have good rhythms. So in my day job, when I connect men to men and men to God and the gathering of the Miami Valley, we have 23 small groups that meet on a regular basis. The ones I'm a part of, we oftentimes start out our time talking about wins and losses, much like me parenting four teenagers, ups and downs. What? How are you in particular things right now, really winning and you're thriving and you're seeing it and where are you maybe struggling and maybe feeling like you're losing some, if you can share that. No, I don't mind a bit. Um, the, the, the successes right now definitely are in my speaking and also in the way that God is allowing my previous books to be used. I, I've written 26 books and normally what happens is you've got one or two books that are really hot, people are paying attention to um, and, and you just let the other one sleep. But what's happening with me is somebody somewhere of prominence, a broadcaster or something, goes, hey, Mansfield wrote a book on X. And nobody's talked about X maybe in a few years. The book's just sold gently, um, but suddenly it explodes. So I have a lot of my old books really firing right now. Uh, the men's books are really hot. Um, won some awards for sales in that area. But also, for example, I wrote a book on church hurt years ago. I went through a, a tough transition out of a church. Uh, that I actually led, decided to write a book about it. The book sold okay when it first came out, but now somehow, because of what's going on in a lot of churches around the country, that book is exploding. And so uh, what's going on really well for me right now is that a lot of my older books are really exploding and doing good. And since I write the books for good, for positive impact in people's lives, um, I'm thrilled by that. On the, on, the, on the side that's a little bit more challenging, not horribly negative, but just a little bit more challenging, um, I had uh, some surgeries a few years ago and had to have a couple of therapies um, that involved the, um, uh, the, the doctors having to turn off my testosterone. And uh, that's been a real battle back in terms of uh, getting in the best shape I want to be. in. I want to be the kind of guy who's when he's 70, people go, man, he looks 30, you know, not out of vanity, uh, but because I, I want to, um, you know, I, I want to be an example. And so that, that period of surgery and therapies and things like that really set me back. It's not like I'm, you know, 500 pounds, but I'm not in the shape I want to be in. So I'm really having to battle for that. So that's probably the more greatest challenge. The great victory would be I get invited to do some pretty amazing speaking around the world and my books are really on fire. So here's what's funny about you mentioning that because I know last time we talked, 
I mentioned ReChurch. So I just recently bought that book about a month ago. I don't even know if I told you this. And sent it to a guy named Matthew Sleeth who's written several books. He goes all over the country and speaks because he's got, he had something like that as an idea to read. And I said, well, at some point I need to introduce you to Stephen Mansfield. It's a book of his that was very under the radar compared to some others, but it's a great book. It's needed. I have continually put that book in front of people talking about it. So that thrills my heart to know and to know that book has a new lifeline, lifeblood. We got to get you and Matthew Sleet together because, yeah, he's really feeling a sense of a need for a book like that. Uh, have you heard of that name, Matthew Sleeth? Out of I've heard the name. I've heard the name. And I got to tell you, it's an important area. You know, uh, surveys show that about 40% of the unchurched in America are actually not people who have never attended church before. They're people who have attended church and gotten offended. So 40% of the people that we're calling in the Christian world, we're calling uh, unchurched, are in fact embittered ex-church. And we got to win them back. There's a different strategy between winning back somebody who's been embittered by the church, even if it's not the church's fault. It can be that person's stuff going on in that person's head. But nevertheless, the approach to them is different from the approach to somebody who's never darkened the door of a church or never seriously considered Jesus. So uh, I think it's an important thing. I think it's a vital thing for where the church is going. And by the way, it's very vital now because you can imagine uh, how many people in America, since, for example, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, how many people are blaming the church, blaming Christians, blaming conservatives, uh, you know, religious conservatives. Uh, and so we got to be careful about all that right now. And so I think the book's more relevant than ever. I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful. So let's stay there for a minute. I always say we'll, we'll go where Holy Spirit goes. I love talking to you about and you did this when you were with us in October 2012, how often we'll talk about worst of times, and you can always make a strong case for best of times. On the hills of Roe versus Wade, on the hills of a number, number, number of things, we've seen school shootings and guns are hot topic again. Where do you see opportunity for us? And I'll speak to men on one hand, but also just speak to us as, as kingdom-minded builders, partners. Where do you see opportunity like never before right now? The opportunities are huge for churches and believers who want to get busy on the streets. Uh, a famous television preacher of the last generation said, find a need and fill it, find a hurt and heal it. And um, the church cannot just be about Sunday morning. It cannot just be about its uh, programs within its four walls. If it's willing to get on the streets, if it's willing to feed, if it's willing to be in the middle of the riots, if it's willing to heal, uh, th this can be a phenomenal time of impact and of healing people's lives. And, you know, I, I know that probably most of the people, you know, in your life, my life watching this are probably pro-life. Uh, but the fact is that we, we've got, we can't just go around celebrating Supreme Court victory. A political victory isn't a victory necessarily um, for, you know, where we are as believers. We've got to decide in the wake of this, that there are women out there who are terrified. They're pregnant. Uh, they feel like, you know, a, a protesters is likely to shoot them as to, you know, open the door for them. Um, this is the moment really for Christians to believe, for Christians to pray, for Christians to be involved, for Christians to step into people's lives. Uh, yeah, adopt. Yeah, start programs. Yeah, make a difference. Um, I obviously believe in politics and the governmental realm. I work in that realm a great deal. But I'm going to tell you, that's not the final answer. That's not the final solution. Political victory is not a, the final solution for the people of God. So we've got to do on the streets what the early church did in the first century on the streets, making a difference in people's lives. And they did it so well in the early centuries that the Roman government finally just turned control of the courts and other things over to the Christians because they were the ones who provided the most justice and the most care. 
Marcus Aurelius said these Christians love our people more than we do. Marcus Aurelius was a famous Roman emperor. So this is a tremendous opportunity, but not just for those who want to sit back, you know, in their easy chairs, watch Fox, I'm not putting it down, I'm on Fox all the time, and, and just consider that, that, you know, any political victory is a victory for the kingdom of God. We've got to have to put on our shoes, get out there on the streets, heal people's lives, make a difference in people's lives. And if we do that, there's tremendous opportunity in this generation. So you take what you just said there and kind of what I've been thinking a lot about. I think it's First Thessalonians 2.8 to the nth degree. We delighted not only to share our lives with you, but the gospel as well. And I think it's a, a both and or even call it do it, live it, speak it. Right. Is that fair to say? I heard somebody say this past week, uh, non-believers don't read the Bible, they read us. And uh, of course, that's that, that's another way of just saying, you know, preach, like what Mother Teresa said, preach the gospel and use words if you must. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in an activist Christianity. You study church history, uh, when the church got fat and sassy, it lost ground. Uh, when it was active in people's lives, you know, in the early church, for example, it, you, we all know that in, in a Roman family, a baby could be born, it was taken to the father, and he could either go thumbs up or thumbs down. Thumbs down meant the baby was exposed on a wall or thrown into a river. The Christians used to wait on those bridges, wait by those rivers, wait at those walls for the babies to be exposed, and they'd go collect them and raise them as their own. Uh, it was stunning. Uh, it was common to expect the elderly to commit suicide in the Roman world, but the Christians started elder care facilities, etc., etc., etc. And that's how they conquered kingdoms. They preached the gospel but they lived it out in actual shoes, actual shoe lever, actually on the ground. And that's what won people's lives. They'd never seen such kindness. They'd never seen such love. They'd never seen such sacrifice. And so we're gonna be stepping into that age again. So again, I'm not putting down political activity, but to just stand at the Supreme Court and shout at the other side, it's not gonna get it done. Uh, we're gonna to have to actually love people on the ground. And I hope the Lord puts us in that situation. I'm as pro-life as I can be. I was almost aborted myself for reasons that did not have to do with my family being down and outers, they just health problems. Um, and I'm, a, I'm as pro-life as I can be, but we're going to have to go beyond just the political here. Yeah. Uh, so let's get back to your time and energy and workload. So you have kind of four areas, I would say, from my, my perspective. You write, you speak and podcast to larger audience. You have smaller groups and teams and organizations you work with. And then obviously some one-on-one. How do you kind of rank and file those and determine importance, impact, sweet spot for yourself at any given time? Because that can come and go and change. So how do you think through those four areas? Well, there's no question that the most long-term strategic for me is the one-on-one -on -one conversation with a person, either of influence or person in crisis, um, where we really can sit down and we're listening. I'm not talking about the casual conversation on an airplane necessarily, but I'm talking about the one-on-one -on -one strategic conversation. I find, I measure things in terms of fruit and, and longevity. I find that years later, somebody will come up to me in an airport or I'll see somebody up on Capitol Hill and they say, you know what you said to me in my office back such and such a time really made a difference. And you, and you look at that person, they're making a massive difference. And that one conversation could have been a turning point. So that one-on-one -on -one strategic conversations, that, again, that's different than just talking over a hamburger or something. Number two, that would be my books. The second thing that I would say that has the most, the broadest impact amongst the most people for the longest period of time would be my books. Uh, the ones that have really caught, the ones that have really been distributed, uh, the ones for men, uh, the ones on uh, business, Search for God and Guinness, for example, things like that. Uh, the ones on leadership, Churchill, Booker T. Washington, George Whitfield, et cetera. Uh, they, they are probably going to survive me in terms of having impact. And so I think if I if I died tomorrow, my books would be the number two most significant things I've ever done. 
Um, and then after that, believe it or not, I know it's maybe bad news for you because we're on a broadcast, but uh, everything else is sort of a part of a, of a, of a whole. I, I love the podcast that I do, and I do a, a leadership uh, email blast called Leading Thoughts. Um, but I, I'm not sure that that has the consistent impact of the speaking, uh, the speaking, the one-on-one, and the um, and the books. There's something that that's like casting seed. You cast it out there. You're hoping people are listening. You get so you see some of the numbers online. Um, but you have to trust God about how that how that long-term impacts. So if I had to prioritize, I would say the one-on-one strategic conversation, books, and then my speaking. Um, but I'm just I'm just honest with myself about what can be relatively short-term. I've made speeches in massive venues, and I'm pretty sure that six months later, nobody there can really remember my name. They may remember a phrase or two. In other words, speaking tends to be shorter term. It's cool and uh, exciting and maybe sexy at the time. But it's not, other than, unless you're preaching the gospel and, and real fruit's happening right there, it's not the long-term fruit. So I'm careful about things that are ego boosts, but not things that are real uh, long-term impact. So I believe in the podcast. I believe in speaking. I believe in the other things that I do. But I think I think strategic conversations, books, and um, and the, the, the occasional speech really is where, where the fruit comes. I love what you said there and how I, I don't know that I expect you to say the one-on-one being at the top. It kind of reminds me of... Kyle Eidelman's got a book out right now called One at a Time, where he looks at you know one relationship at a time, one party at a time, one conversation, one word. And he said that every time he writes a sermon, of course, he's, he's one of the 10 biggest in the U.S., and he said he'll write down like two names at the very top right corner that he hopes they get the message to keep yes. it micromanaged. I, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I've started Disciple Guy over the last year, and I asked him one day, I said, now, when did you graduate from high school? He goes, 2016. I looked at my notes real quick. I'm like, oh. So what do you, what do you remember from your commencement speaker? He goes, I don't know, nothing. I go, do you remember anything he said? He goes, no. I said, do you know who your commencement speaker was? He goes, no. I said, it was me. I'll send you my notes. And I didn't even think about it. Like I was at his school and I spoke at commencement. I said, I'll let you know how great his eight minute message was. But again, he's not going to remember squat about that, but he'll remember time one-on-one I'm pouring into him and yada, yada, yada. And I love that I can't imagine you in the halls of DC and, you know, a Senate building, a Congress building, a library, and someone coming up to you. And I like that you hold that as the prize that that really is. So that's, that's well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, the real, that, the, what we're talking about right now is a real truth for me. And I urge it amongst among, as many leaders as possible. Get honest about what's really effective and what's not. Now, I do some pretty cool speaking. I get picked up. I get flown. I speak. But I got to be honest about the fact, as you've just said and I've said, I'm not sure long term, I'm talking about in a decade, that the speaking, even though it's an amazing life and I don't mind being blunt with you, I make a lot of money doing it. Um, I'm not sure that it's the most effective. And so what it does is, I, I don't mean it's not effective, I mean long term. What it does is it makes me even a change my approach to speaking. In other words, I speak at a high school graduation, like you've just said, I'm not convinced they may, they may not remember who I am in a year. I don't remember my high school uh, speaker. Uh, and I don't remember my college speaker, quite frankly. He was a Texas senator. I mean, an Oklahoma senator. I don't remember his name. But I, I would have remembered if they had styled their speech not so much in terms of I'm senator so on speaking. I'm going to put two principles out. I want these kids to remember forever. I'm going to say it with style and I'm going to say it with humor and I'm going to say it with impact. That would have been real effective. So even though I'm somewhat well-known and I get to do some cool things, I craft speeches so that 
forget the event, forget me, forget the night, forget the year, for heaven's sakes. The words, a few sentences might live on. Uh, I want them to have a pleasant time. I want them to laugh. I want to honor the graduates or whatever I'm doing. But I, I go for I go for long term. I go for long term. I'm looking for legacy here. And I want to have people, I want to, I, you know, I remember some things that have been said to me 40 years ago that still shaped my life. I don't remember who said them, but I remember that the word shaped my life. And that's how I craft myself. So I think this, this principle that we're talking about right now, uh, be a little humble, be willing to look honestly at what really lasts, mm. emphasize it, de-emphasize the other stuff is really an important life lesson and an important leadership lesson. I don't care if anybody else gets anything out of this podcast. You've just served me well. I, you know, I, I think I've made a connection before I, or we had some dialogue between you and Mark Batterson and yeah. I know, I know Mark Batterson. One of the things I really appreciate about him is, you know, he, he uses the line, stay humble, humble, stay hungry. He uses, and I say this line all the time, change of pace plus change of place equals change of perspective. And I think this is a great teachable moment you're giving us that, yeah, phrasing words, wordsmithing goes a long way. Name, title, whatever you're associated with doesn't mean nearly as much. So that being said, we're going to transition to my favorite part. I've never done anything like this with you. The rapid five, five really quick hitting, simple kind of things. So, Stephen, you get to be on any game show all time, past or present, that you love and think you can win. Which game show are you going to be on? Well, it's one nobody's going to know. I grew up in Germany, and there was a game show that was all about history. And it was, it was basically Jeopardy, but only in the field of history and literature. And I loved it. And so I won't even say the name because it's German. It won't make any difference to your audience. But that's the one I'd most like to be on. And I, and I would trust to win millions. <laughs> <laughs> I love your confidence in knowing you would win. So I'd try, man. I would try. See, I've always said I want $25,000 pyramid. I think I could do pretty well on that one. So <laughs> although now it's got to be worth a whole lot more than 25000 So um, what's your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Uh, no question, Oreos. I have had a lifelong love affair with Oreos and very cold milk. And uh, that was my favorite thing as a kid. And I still dip into it once in a while as an adult, though we don't keep them in the house for obvious reasons. I can actually sit down and during a football game, if I'm not paying attention, just because my hands are big and my mouth is apparently big, <laughs> I can eat a whole bag of Oreos and never, never uh, even think about it. And so um, that's that's been my favorite my whole life. So how do you feel then about all these different Oreos that they've been coming up with in recent years? It's evidence of communism taking over America. <laughs> it should absolutely be illegal. There's only one Oreo. Well, maybe two. Come on, I do like the stuff. Yes. But I'm telling you, putting icing on them, making the mango, this is evidence of the decline of America. That's all there is to it. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to be highly disappointed in you if you didn't at least give some credit to double stuff, because I do think double stuff have to count in that equation. So. I don't know. When I'm feeling fat and sassy, double stuff is the thing. But the, other, but the regular ones are normal. I don't like the thins. I don't like the mango. I don't like the orange. I don't like the chocolate icing. I don't want them dressed up for Easter and Christmas. Leave them the heck alone. Yeah. I got to ask you this question because I thought, I mean, I'm going to know some of your answers, I think, here, but I definitely want the, uh, the, the listeners to know this. Your Mount Rushmore of lunches, you get four current living people. I'm going to limit you to current living people so Winston Churchill does not make the list. Oh, man. I want new and fresh. Who are you dining with and where are you going to eat? If I'm going to dine with four people right now, it's going to be a couple of my Asian, favorite Asian restaurants. I, I am a craze for really good high-end Asian food. Um, and the four people would be David McCullough, 
John Meacham, who I disagree with on almost everything, but still like very much. He lives near here and we're buddies. Probably um, Boris Johnson of England. I find him fascinating. And uh, Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, former prime minister of Israel. Really? So you're not going to say, I'm trying to blank, uh, who's my guy, Marcus Freeman. You're not going to say Marcus Freeman? From I don't my, think so. He's from my neck so. of the woods. I thought you Notre Dame football coach. Uh, sorry about your luck, Brian Kelly, but it's Mar- <laughs> Marcus Freeman, right? Oh, listen, don't even bring up Brian Kelly. I'm so ticked off at him, I can't see straight. He abandoned the boys before the season was even over. And so I'm looking forward to Marcus Freeman doing it right. But I don't know him yet, and I haven't met him, and so I'll – Maybe one day we will, but but I like talking to statesmen. I like talking to people of literature. I like talking to historians. That would be a lot of fun. So I got I got to tell you this since we're on since you mentioned Brian Kelly. So I happened to see something. I forgot if it was on like Fox Sports or somewhere recently. Maybe maybe it was uh, Shannon Sharp and them. Somebody was making a joke about when he did somewhere some sort of. Uh, I don't know if it was a presser or it was it was something recently where they said he was purposely using like Louisiana slang to make people relate to him better. He was talking like as if he's from Louisiana. And was that legit or was he trying to play there or what was he doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry to have to say it, but you you can go on YouTube and you can see Kelly starting to sound like a Louisiana boy when he's not even close. <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's some virtue in trying to sound, be a little bit more like the culture, but you got to be who you are. Yeah. What mainly bothers me about Kelly, even though he did great stuff for Notre Dame football, is he left before the season was over. Yeah. You don't just abandon. You can negotiate a deal and step into it five minutes after the season's no, over. He didn't even finish the last game. So do not get me started on this. It's all we'll talk about for the rest of the <laughs> day. It ticks right. me off. All right, Steve, let's get into some humor here. What is your all-time favorite dad joke or stand-up comedy bit? Oh, you know what? I, I do I do goofy things with my kids, basically knock-knock jokes and stuff like that. I've got a bunch of grandkids. And so, it's, I mean, I got grandkids. And so we just uh, sit around doing that kind of thing, just 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 doing silly, stupid knock-knock knock, knock jokes. Knock-knock, who's there? Boo, boo-hoo, why are you crying? I mean, my, my, my grandkid's five. Well, he thinks that stuff's hilarious. I'm the greatest thing to walk the earth. Other than that, though, I'm not very good with jokes. I'm more, I'm more, I'm better with rowdy humor, teasing, smack talk. That's kind of what we do. But um, my, my five-year-old brilliant grandchild will actually go and uh, read knock-knock jokes online and then come loaded to forbear the next time he sees me. So sure. anyway. So my favorite icebreaker, it. and this will work well with you. Tell me about the pair of shoes you're wearing right now. I'm actually barefoot right now underneath my desk. Uh, but the ones I'm wearing are some brand new court shoes. I play racquetball and work out. So some brand new court shoes that I like very much. Oh. Uh, I have, I, I, uh, it's interesting you bring that up. That's going to, it's not going to be interesting to anybody else. I have size 15 feet. Okay. I'm six, four and I don't look weird, but on my feet, uh, one foot is 14 and a half. The other is 15. So buying shoes for me is no joke. And, and by the way, there's an art to buying them. So they don't look like skis. So when I get a pair of shoes that really work for me, especially in sports, I'm thrilled. And that's largely my wife's doing. Bev is a brilliant, brilliant purchaser of clothes. I, uh, so do you get into, hey, do they have the make those big enough? Do you get into Hey Dudes at all? No, not big enough. Oh man. I, I figure they may not make those that big. Anyway, oh, no, you gotta, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm grateful that I hang out with a, a few guys in the NFL. You know, I, I think, you know, that I, I help chaplain a couple of teams yeah. and uh, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful because I can turn to these guys. I mean, I'm talking about a guy I look up to, you know, in the locker room and I'm six, four, six, five. Um, and I'll say, man, where do you get those shoes? Where do you get this? Where do you get that? They don't have a custom made. They're actual outlets, but you got to know where they are. Sure. So that's really helped me a lot to get the information from those guys. Cause they're, we're talking, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a guy who's six, eight, 
340 pounds, looks good, not, not a whole lot of fat. He's got a size 16, 17 shoe. I mean, it's it's stunning. He's got so they really helped me. Yeah. I love asking guys like you because I think this is really a good applicable stuff potentially for listeners. What is your time with Jesus looking like these days? To give us some some tidbits, some first Corinthians 11, 1. How do we follow your example as you're spending time with Jesus these days? I do a couple of things that really help me that I've had to because of my, the way my life tends to go. I have learned a principle in my life that if I don't do something first thing in the morning, it gets away from me. I haven't quite mastered the art of getting up first thing in the morning and working out because I'm basically a night person. And when I wake up in the morning, I, it takes me a little while to wake up. But I read scripture before I even get out of bed. I wake up, roll over, pick up the iPad, and I read my daily scripture, which is pretty lengthy, usually. Um, and then I, I, you know, go to the house because people have a little, I have a protein bar for breakfast most every morning. And then I go to my office and I pray. Do it first thing. It's got to be the first thing. If not, it gets away from me. And so that's how I spend most of my time in Jesus. The most important thing that I do other than that, other than the daily time in the word and prayer, and I, I do believe in the principle from scripture, pray without ceasing. So I'm constantly praying. Bev's always turning to me and saying, what did you just say? And what I'm doing is muttering, I'm praying, I'm thinking, I'm talking out loud. I mean, it's that kind of thing all day, even though I'm a little weird about it. Um, but, but, but the thing that's most important for me is I teach men, especially, you got to run your life from the control room. And I borrow that language from air traffic control at airports. Um, most men don't sit still long enough to let their imagination and their hearts go out over their lives and consider the state of things, the health of things. They're moving fast. They're saying grace over whatever they got on their plate, but they're not sitting still, you know, back, backyard in the evening with a stogie or on a run or walk in the park or whatever they do. Um, taking time to let their mind and heart before God go over their entire life. And normally we're getting warnings. Normally we have things we know aren't quite right. So I think I'm just making this up now. I don't even have a 13 year old. Let's say I'm thinking about my 13 year old and I'm just thinking about his life and suddenly I feel this lack of ease, lack of peace, lack of settledness about, I don't know, I'm making stuff up here, his dating life, or that I haven't talked to him yet about, about what it means to be a man or his attitude towards that teacher he hates in fifth period or whatever it is. Um, and just by sitting there thinking about him, holding it, saying, God, show me anything that's wrong or needs to be addressed in our lives. Maybe there's something about our money. Maybe there's something about that 13-year-old. Maybe there's something about uh, a change of home or house direction or start looking or whatever. Uh, those things come to me during that time. It's about once a week. It's not a place. It's a condition. For me, it's often on an airplane because I fly a lot. Being at 30,000 feet, looking down over the clouds, thinking a little bit you know, having a little something to eat or drink there, the plane, that's when I really get peaceful. Nobody can call me, nobody can break in. Um, and I've made a lot of the strategic decisions about my life that have really produced good things by, by doing that. I also do it like anybody else, back porch in the woods, by the pool, whatever. But the point is, find that control room, calm it down and think over the things about your life. I love that. I love that response. If you were with me, like you were back in 2012 and the people in my world for a couple of days, like you were, what would we notice different about you today that we didn't notice back then? You'll probably notice that I'm a little calmer. It wasn't that I was, I had my hair pulled out, but I could be energetic and emphatic when I was speaking or with people. Um, I think, I think with a little bit of age comes a little bit more calm. I have a little bit more trust in the the spirit of God, when I speak, I have a little bit more trust in my gifts coming to the fore. I'm pushing less. Um, what's that, a decade ago? I'm not saying it would be radically different. People wouldn't go, wow, he never talks. Um, it would be calm. It'd be peaceful and probably a little bit more fun, a little bit more relaxed. 
as you get older in life, you get more confidence in yourself. You see how God uses you. You, you understand how you work with a crowd. Uh, you're peaceful. You're calm. Uh, and so that's, that would probably be it. That would probably be it. And probably eat a little bit more. So I think, I think you always <laughs> seem to be a little ahead of the curve with where things are, cultural, the world, uh, state of being, just things that are moving at such a rapid pace. What are you keeping your eye on right now that may be of importance to us down the road that maybe people are not paying attention to right now? I, uh, if, if we're talking about government for a moment, I think the big thing that's happening is that people are, that, that, that our U.S. government is, is, is in, a, in a bit of a turn back to the states. And this is going to be a pretty exciting opportunity. This is the way the founding fathers intended it. Certain things, macro things had to be dealt with by the federal government. Um, but, but the government, if it would limit itself, if it wouldn't have an imperial federal government, um, the states would be responsible for most things. I think this Supreme Court ruling could be a beginning of that because basically the Supreme Court said abortion is not guaranteed in the Constitution. So the, the, we as the Supreme Court can't, can't rule on this. The, the states get to do what they want to do. It's a big turn in American history. Um, in terms of where we are spiritually, um, I really think, and this people are going to just be shocked by this, but I think we're in a pre, um, pre-renewal, pre-outpouring of the Holy Spirit state in the United States. I, I'm not bothered by the rising tide of nuns because I find that most of the nuns are people who are excited about Jesus, reading their Bibles, hungry for something, just, just don't find any life in the church. Um, and I'm not an anti-church guy. I'm a member of two churches in two different cities. And as I often say, I'm definitely going to heaven for that. But, <laughs> but, the, but the, the, fun, the, the thing is that I think these are opportunities. And what we have a style of preaching and a style of thinking as Christians, which is we sit around and we, and we actually do sermons where we list all the things going wrong in the world. Billy Graham used to do this as much as I admire him. You list all the things that are going wrong. And then you say, well, so you need to get saved to escape all this stuff. And I think there's a slightly different perspective going on, and that is that much of what we take as being negative is actually positive in the sense for, of how people are searching, people are hungry, uh, people are looking for spiritual reality, they're not looking for our performances, they're not that excited about our music, they're not that excited about our showiness as the ex-Christians, but when we get real and get in people's lives, they adore us. Um, and and I, it's not about being personally adored, it's about the fact that we then can have influence. And here's the bottom line principle for me. You offer a people hope. You acquire a position of leadership in their lives. You offer people hope. You acquire a position of leadership in their lives. So it could be that we're being positioned in our generation uh, with opportunities to provide a people hope. And um, that's not the same thing maybe as getting them in our pews. It's not the same thing as maybe getting them into our doctrinal structures. But it is the same thing as getting them connected to the author of hope, Jesus Christ. See, and I think that's, that, that, that may be the key to the future. This is what's key for me about promoting you and being a, a, a big fan of your content and who you are is you give me hope. And I, th I think you have such a spin on things that's firm and yet it's, it's, it's exciting. And, and I love what you're saying. So let's close with us, Stephen, thinking about the days we're in, what is making you currently these for any of these four things attack it sad. What's making you laugh? What's making you angry? What's making you joyful? What makes me sad are the shootings, just like everybody else. I think they're unnecessary. I hate the, I, 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 I went to public school my whole early life until I went to a private college. I can't imagine what it would have been like to actually be fearing that somebody would come in and shoot us. And by the way, I went to a high school in Berlin, Germany, where the Bader Meinhof gang, a terrorist group, was calling in bomb threats and where helicopters did land on our football field. So I had some of that, but I can't imagine living in it as, as it is today. So that makes me sad. What makes me laugh is Sebastian Maniscalco, 
a, a, a comedian who's got a couple of two or three different shows on um, on uh, Netflix. And man, he just cracks me up. I really, really enjoy him. Um, and also Nate Bargatze, by the way, another another comedian I really enjoy. So they just make me laugh and laugh and laugh. What was the other now? What makes me? Uh, they were joyful, angry, laugh, sad. What makes me joyful are my, my two grandsons. I've got a grandson who's about seven months old and a grandson who's five. I'm waiting for the younger one to get old enough to wrestle and talk smack. The five-year-old definitely does. And so they really give me joy. Of course, I've always felt great joy about Bev. She's just an amazing, amazing woman. And then the final one, remind me. Uh, I think you've covered it. I just, okay. I'm stuck on what you said that we both love Nate and Sebastian the way we do. So I'm, I'm yeah. man, we, we got to go to comedy club together. I'm holding you to it. When I'm in Nashville, we got to, is the Zanies in Nashville? Yes, baby. Man, we got to go to Zanies together. Well, now I'm, what about John Chris? Do you like John Chris at all? I don't know who that is. I like clean, I like clean humor. Yeah. I don't think. You know, there are there are there are comedians and I don't mind the occasional strong language. I'm not a priss uh, about all that. I don't I don't believe in blasphemy, of course. But, you know, to say damn or hell doesn't necessarily blow up, you know, your whole spiritual life. But I don't like crassness. I don't think just sitting there shouting the F word is humor. Yeah. I don't think it's skill. I don't what what does that do for me? I don't want to hear nastiness. Uh, it's not just that I'm a Christian. It's that I don't think it's funny. Yeah. So Sebastian uh, and Nate are both hilarious. And I and there are entire two hour shows from them without one single thing off color. And uh, that's real skill to me. And so I just, we just enjoy the heck out of it. Bev and I watch that and just crack up. And I'm a big believer in the actual physiological effects of laughter. Oh, yeah. I believe in laughter. I believe in laughter in a home and laughter in friendships and humor. And I don't like smack talk. I don't like people put, I mean, I don't like the smack, kind of smack talk that's putting people down uh, and hurting them. But I do like locker room kind of, you know, popping the towel and joking with each other and teasing him about his girlfriend. I, I think that's just guys nurturing each other. So I enjoy all that very much. I just stumbled across a Nate uh, seven-minute segment CBS This Morning did back in the fall. And his uh, his podcast is great, the Nate Land. I had Brian Bates on here, who kind of is the quarterback for that. And uh, his his title, The Greatest Average American. Man, I'm so mad. <laughs> I wish I would have had that because I could buy that for myself, but Nate's already stolen it. And his two bits about Starbucks with getting too much milk – and his drink, yes. and then the horse, who he didn't realize yes. sleeps. Yes. Laying down. Those They're two great. bits are hilarious. Brilliant. And I love the fact that I that and I know I sound like an old grandfather, and I'm really not. But I love the fact that anybody can walk through the room in my house when I'm playing those things, and there's nothing. You know, I, I don't have much going on ever on TV that anybody couldn't hear. Yeah. Every so often, you're watching something you don't want a five year old to hear. But uh, but I love good comedy that's clean because I think it's more skillful. Sure. Anything else for us besides going to mansfieldgroup.com as we close it out with you? Actually, we've changed our website. Let me just tell you real quick. It's stephenmansfield.tv. It's going to take you to the same place. That's cool. stephenmansfield.tv. And for, and for the, the people who are listening, I strongly recommend uh, this podcast that we're on right now. Uh, I do one called Great Man. I also do one called Stephen Mansfield Podcast. And um, and so just check me out at stephenmansfield.tv and you'll figure out what we do. And we'll happy to help you any way we can. Well, when I get to heaven someday and, and, and uh, I get to talk about the people who went before me and invested in my life, you will definitely be one of the names that comes up. Oh, so you're kind. Appreciate man. it always. Thank you so much. Thanks for investing in me like you do. And thanks for being a guest today on the Pinkleton Poolside Podcast, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.